Hi everyone, welcome back to the MedBullet Step 1 podcast. In today's episode, we cover the topic of miscarriage, found under the reproductive section at medbullets.com. Let's begin with a clinical snapshot. A 35-year-old G3P2 woman at 12 weeks of gestation presents to the emergency department with six hours of vaginal bleeding and cramping pain. She has had two prior vaginal deliveries and no history of pregnancy-related complications. She has been receiving regular prenatal care. Let's continue with an introduction to miscarriage. As a reminder, this refers to non-elective termination of pregnancy at less than 20 weeks of gestation. In terms of the epidemiology, this occurs spontaneously in about 15% of all pregnancies. Demographically, this is more common in women of advanced maternal age meaning age greater than 35 years. There's about an 11% risk in women that are less than 35 years old, 17% risk in women that are between 35 and 39 years old, 33% risk in women that are between 40 and 44 years old, and 57% risk in women that are 45 years old or older. Risk factors again include advanced maternal age greater than 35 years old, and this is the number one risk factor due to a strong association with fetal chromosomal abnormalities. Other risk factors include advanced paternal age, prior pregnancy loss, remember that the risk increases as the number of prior miscarriages increases, maternal diabetes type 1 or type 2, and remember that gestational diabetes begins after 20 weeks of gestation, so it cannot contribute to miscarriage. Other risk factors include obesity, thyroid disease, either hypo or hyperthyroidism, stress, which may be acute or chronic, inherited thrombophilias or coagulopathies, including antiphospholipid syndrome, conception less than three months after a live birth, pregnancy with an IUD in place, and a subchorionic hematoma. Causes for miscarriage include fetal chromosomal abnormalities, which may be present in up to 70% of miscarriages. Other causes include infection, such as from listeria, parvovirus B19, and remember that there's about an 8% cumulative incidence of pregnancy loss with parvovirus B19, and a 5.6 times higher risk of pregnancy loss if the infection occurs in the first trimester. Syphilis, which has about a 21% increased risk of fetal loss in stillbirth if it is untreated, and cytomegalovirus, or CMV which has about a 2.5 increased odds of early pregnancy loss compared with non-infected pregnant women. Other causes include incompetent cervix, uterine abnormalities such as leiomyomas or fibroids, polyps, adhesions, septa, and a bicornate uterus. Remember that this is due to an incomplete fusion of the paramesonephric ducts and the uterus growth is limited. Other causes include trauma, which may be direct impact to the uterus, violent trauma such as from gunshot wounds, penetrating injuries, and blunt abdominal trauma, and iatrogenic trauma such as during chorionic villus sampling and amniocentesis. Yet other causes may include toxins, radiation, and environmental exposures, and medications and substance abuse. Remember that the risk is increased in a dose-related fashion, and these substances may include alcohol, smoking, cocaine, and methamphetamines. With regards to the prognosis, this is very good if the patient is properly treated. However, with regards to the risk of future miscarriage, 
There's a 14% risk after one miscarriage, 26% risk after two miscarriages, and 28% risk after three miscarriages. Now let's review the classification of miscarriages. A threatened miscarriage is when there is vaginal bleeding, no passage of contents, a closed cervical os, and the ultrasound findings may demonstrate a fetus that is present and has cardiac activity. For an inevitable miscarriage, there is vaginal bleeding, no passage of contents, an open cervical os, and the ultrasound will demonstrate a fetus that is present but does not have cardiac activity. For an incomplete miscarriage, there is vaginal bleeding, there is passage of contents, and the cervical os is open. Ultrasound will demonstrate retained fetal parts. For a complete miscarriage, there is vaginal bleeding, there is passage of contents, but the cervical os is closed, and the ultrasound will not demonstrate any fetus. And for a missed miscarriage, there is no vaginal bleeding, no passage of contents, the cervical os is closed, and the fetus will be present on ultrasound, but it does not have cardiac activity. Moving on to the presentation. Symptoms may include vaginal bleeding, which commonly occurs in the first trimester without subsequent loss of pregnancy. Other symptoms may include abdominal or pelvic cramping pain, some patients may be asymptomatic, and some may note a reduction in the previous pregnancy symptoms, such as decreased nausea and decreased breast tenderness. On exam, patients' vitals may demonstrate signs of shock if there is significant hemorrhage. A speculum exam can be performed to assess the source and quantity of bleeding. Bleeding from the cervix and an open cervical os may suggest a miscarriage, and significant hemorrhage should prompt an urgent evaluation and intervention. A bimanual exam can determine whether the cervix is open or not. One should assess the presence of tissue within the cervical canal, and one can also estimate the gestational age. A handheld Doppler can be used to listen for fetal heart tones. An absence of fetal heart tones at 12 weeks of gestation or later suggests a potential early pregnancy loss. In terms of further imaging, a transvaginal ultrasound is critical for diagnosis of miscarriage and it can assess the fetal cardiac activity. One should look for the presence of intrauterine gestation and evidence of viability. The diagnosis of miscarriage can be made if any one of the following is present. A gestational sac 25 millimeters or greater without a yolk sac or embryo. An embryo with crown rump length that is seven millimeters or greater that does not have cardiac activity. Following a pelvic ultrasound that showed a gestational sac without a yolk sac, if there's an absence of an embryo with a heartbeat in two weeks or greater, and following a pelvic ultrasound that demonstrated a gestational sac with a yolk sac, if there's an absence of an embryo with a heartbeat in 11 days or greater. Also remember that one may begin with a transabdominal ultrasound, but proceed to a transvaginal ultrasound if they are unable to demonstrate cardiac activity in an intrauterine pregnancy. One can also perform a hysterosalpingogram, this can elucidate potential causes of miscarriage, but should only be performed after treatment for a confirmed miscarriage. Findings may include uterine structural abnormalities. In terms of further studies, a serum beta-HCG is not required for diagnosis, but it may be useful in specific circumstances, such as to determine the concern for ectopic pregnancy if a gestational sac is not seen on ultrasound, or if an ultrasound is not available. Remember that a drop in beta-HCG greater than 25% over 48 hours in the setting of uterine bleeding is highly suggestive of early pregnancy loss. 
a serum progesterone is needed for maintenance of endometrium. So low levels, meaning less than 35 nanomoles per liter, is associated with early pregnancy loss. But one cannot use it for definitive diagnosis due to a high variability of normal levels among pregnancies. In terms of the differential, make sure to think about a normal intrauterine pregnancy, with key distinguishing factors being that serial ultrasounds will demonstrate viable intrauterine gestations, and patients can have cramping and vaginal bleeding in a normal pregnancy. Also think about ectopic pregnancy, with key distinguishing factors being that on ultrasound, there will be no intrauterine pregnancy visible. One may see a visible pregnancy that is outside of the uterine cavity, and one may see bleeding in the pelvis, which is suggestive of a ruptured ectopic, and patients may have abnormal beta-HCG levels. Also think about a hydatidiform mole, with key distinguishing factors being that an ultrasound will demonstrate an enlarged uterus and a quote-unquote snowstorm appearance of the uterus, and patients will have abnormally elevated beta-HCG. With regards to treatment, management should be expectant. This should include counseling and return precautions. This is indicated for less than 14 weeks of gestation, a threatened or inevitable abortion, stable vital signs, no evidence of infection, a desire to avoid surgery and or medication, and a desire to pass the uterine contents at home. Remember that the majority of expulsions occur in the first two weeks after diagnosis, and if it is unsuccessful after four weeks, then one should proceed to surgical evaluation. Medical options include mesoprostol. This is indicated in women with non-viable pregnancy up to 12 weeks and six days of completed gestation, if they are hemodynamically stable, if there is no evidence of hemorrhage, severe anemia, or bleeding disorders, if there is no evidence of infection, and remember that it can be used for treatment in the second trimester in the hospital setting. Specific modalities include that it may be administered vaginally as a single dose, or there may be a repeat dose in seven days if there is no response to the first dose. Another option is mifepristone. This is indicated for pretreatment prior to mesoprostol, and it is the preferred method for first trimester miscarriage. The specific modality includes a single oral dose followed 24 hours later by a single dose of intravaginal mesoprostol. Another option is Rogam. This is indicated in all RHD-negative mothers if the father is RHD-positive or unknown. Specific modalities include a single intramuscular or intravenous dose. Surgical options include a dilation and curatage, or DNC. This is indicated if there is an incomplete, inevitable, or missed abortion. It is indicated in the first trimester or early second trimester, meaning less than 16 weeks of gestation, and if there is failed expectant or medical management. Specific modalities include a dilation of the cervix and removal of the pregnancy with sharp curatage and or suction curatage. Another option is a dilation and evacuation, or DNE. This is indicated at 16 weeks of gestation or later. The modalities include a wide mechanical dilation of the cervix with destruction of the fetal parts and removal of tissue with large bore vacuum curettes. Another option is a hysteroscopic removal. This is indicated for retained products of conception after a failed expectant, medical, or surgical management. It is also indicated if there are no signs of hemorrhage and no signs of infection. The specific modalities include using a scope to visualize the abnormal tissue and the abnormal tissue being removed with the morcellator or grasper. And in terms of follow-up, 
patients should undergo weekly serum beta-HCG. This should occur after expectant or medical management, and one should continue to measure until the serum beta-HCG is undetectable. And lastly, let's review complications related to miscarriage. One is hemorrhage. This can occur during miscarriage or during or after surgical treatment, and it could lead to maternal death. Risk factors include uterine atony after a surgical treatment, cervical injury, uterine perforation, subinvolution of the placental implantation site, and an underlying coagulopathy. In terms of the treatment, one should check for and remove any retained products of conception. One should use uterotonics for uterine atony. These include oxytocin and mesoprostol. One should perform surgical treatment of the cervical injury or uterine perforation, and intravenous fluids and blood products can be given if the patient is hemodynamically unstable. Another complication is retained products of conception. This should be suspected in patients with a uterine bleeding that increases in volume, uterine bleeding that persists more than two weeks after uterine evacuation, and treatment is IV fluids and blood products if the patient is hemodynamically unstable and urgent surgical intervention. Another complication is endometritis. This presents with mild uterine tenderness, an empty uterus on ultrasound exam, there may or may not be a fever, and it occurs after complete miscarriage or uterine evacuation. Treatment for this is oral broad-spectrum antibiotics. And a last complication is septic abortion. This occurs in a miscarriage that is accompanied by intrauterine infection. Risk factors include an induced abortion as opposed to a miscarriage and retained products of conception. Treatment is IV fluids and blood products if the patient is hemodynamically unstable. One should obtain blood and endometrial cultures. IV broad-spectrum antibiotics should be given until the patient is afebrile for 48 hours, and oral antibiotics should be given for 10 to 14 days after completion of IV antibiotic course, and a surgical evacuation of any retained products of conception should take place. Now that we've discussed the major points relating to miscarriage, Let's walk through a question to apply what we've learned and get a sense of how the topic might be tested. For this question, consider the following clinical scenario. A 30-year-old female presents to the fertility clinic with a history of multiple miscarriages. She is frustrated as she and her partner have been trying to conceive for over two years. Her medical history is unremarkable and her physical exam is within normal limits. A hysterosalpingogram is performed which demonstrates a bicornate uterus. What process resulted in this abnormality? And the answer choices are, choice one, incomplete degeneration of the hymen. Choice two, incomplete degeneration of the paramesonephric ducts. Choice three, failure of the mesonephric ducts to fuse. Choice four, failure of the processes vaginalis to close. Or choice five, failure of the paramesonephric ducts to fuse. The best answer to this question is choice 5, failure of the paramesonephric ducts to fuse. This patient is presenting with a bicornate uterus. A bicornate uterus is caused by the failure of the paramesonephric ducts or malarian ducts to fuse completely. A bicornate uterus is a uterus in which the fundus is indented and the vagina is generally normal. The uterus is composed of two outpouchings separated by a septum. Uterus didelphus refers to women who have total uterine duplication due to the same process. 
bicornuate uterus may lead to a urinary tract infection and miscarriage, but does not affect a woman's ability to become pregnant. MRI is the gold standard for diagnosis of a bicornuate uterus, but other modalities such as ultrasound and hysterosalpingogram are also helpful. Current treatment involves surgical repair, but efficacy of this approach is debated. The publication by Chanadol systematically reviewed the association between different types of congenital uterine anomalies and various reproductive outcomes. They found that unification defects, meaning defects in fusion of the paramesonephric ducts, such as a bicornuate uterus, does not reduce fertility, but some are associated with miscarriage and preterm delivery. All types of uterine anomalies increase the chance of fetal malpresentation at delivery. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choice 1. Incomplete degeneration of the hymen would cause an imperforate hymen. This would not result in the hysterosalpingogram or clinical picture described. Choice 2. Incomplete fusion, not degeneration of the paramesonephric ducts, causes a bicornuate uterus. Choice 3. The mesonephric ducts, or Wolfian ducts, develop into the male internal structures and thus are not involved in the development of a bicornuate uterus. Choice 4. Failure of the process's vaginalis to close would cause an indirect inguinal hernia to develop. That's all for this review about miscarriage. We hope that was helpful. This is the MedBullet Step 1 podcast, a daily audio review session for MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. As a reminder, you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing the topics directly on MedBullets.com. You can listen to these episodes on the MedBullets website or phone app while reading through the topic. If the MedBullets podcast has been valuable to you, we'd be thrilled if you considered leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow, right here on the MedBullets Step 1 podcast.